Hello and welcome to Water Q&A, Global Water Forum's monthly dive into the challenges of water governance in the 21st century. I'm Jesper Sanson, your host. In this episode, Brian Eiler, the author of the book The Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, shares his perspectives of and experiences with one of the world's great river systems. So, Brian, I would like to start with uh, by asking you, what is the trade-off between hydropower development and fisheries con- conservation in the watershed, and how does that vary in the Mekong River? Well, it's a great start-off question. I, I want to also add in um, agricultural development, because often the, the lens of trade-offs is seen in its most simplest form through energy generation, fisheries production and, and agriculture in the Mekong Basin. And um, it's, it's, it's very possible at the large scale that if the business as usual planning trajectory for hydropower dams moves forward, that there's really a zero-sum game of trade-offs um, between energy generation and fish and, and agriculture. Um And it's important to flesh out some of the the data and the details here on what makes the Mekong unique. Um, You know, in terms of fisheries, the Mekong Basin contributes 20% of the world's freshwater fish catch. Um, For one one river basin, it's really remarkable. It's more than remarkable. Um, Here, I, I live in the United States, and in North America, all of our rivers and lakes combined only produce 160,000 tons of freshwater fish each year. The Mekong does 13 times more than that, 2.6 million tons of fish per year. Again, one river basin. And um, that, by and large, is created through, one, the annual monsoon pulse that that creates conditions for the Tonle Sap Lake to expand. And in Cambodia, maybe we can talk about that later. Um, but it's that that annual expansion of the Tonle Sap Lake that drives this, this huge fishery, this huge fish population, and then the subsequent fish catch. Um, and then in the the countries of the Lower Mekong, agriculture contributes significant portions um, to to GDP of the countries of Thailand, of Laos, and Cambodia, and Vietnam, um, and is uh, particularly important to driving the economies of Cambodia and Thailand. So um, to to highlight Vietnam, um, Vietnam's Mekong Delta is a landscape that takes up about 12% of Vietnam's land. Um, 20% of the population lives there, so that, you know, it's kind of out of proportion. Um, But you want to talk about what's really out of proportion is that patch of land produces more than 50% of Vietnam's rice export, as well as more than 70% of Vietnam's fish and fruit export. So it's a significant contributor to the global market. And and that agriculture, the fruit and the the fisheries that come out of the aquaculture, the the, the grown fish that come out of the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, um, happen as a result of what comes out of the Mekong. So that's the water of the Mekong as well as sediment. Um, that's transmitted throughout the delta through flood-based processes as well as through canals that support irrigation. And hydropower dams built upstream um, block these these ecological flows, the environmental flows, I should say, that move through the river system. 
Um, they block migratory fish. And the Mekong is the one river in the world with the most migratory fish in it, the, the numerous sizes um, and, and characteristics, biological characteristics. And dams also block the distribution of sediment um, throughout the entirety of the system. And um, currently, the, the basin is, um, if, if, again, if this business, if, if a business as usual trajectory represents 100% build out, then the basin's about 35% built out right now. And I mean, I personally don't think that that many dams are going to get built, but, but the countries of the Mekong would prefer to build more than 400 dams in the entirety of the basin. And China already has 11 mega dams on the upstream portions of, of the basin in its country. What is one mega dam? Can you explain that? What does that mean? I'm, when I say mega dams, um i'm denoting dams that are larger than a thousand megawatts um so uh, often large dams um are, are defined on, on different um scales sometimes large dams are 150 megawatts sometimes they're there are 300 megawatts on, on different scales but um here uh, i'm denoting them as higher than 1000 megawatts and um so they're you know some of the world's Highest dams are on China's portions of the upstream. Um, the Xiaowan Dam um, has a wall that's almost a thousand feet high, almost 300 meters high, um, and it can produce 4,500 megawatts of power, which is a, I mean, it's a mighty powerhouse of a of a dam. Um, and then farther downstream, the the dams tend to get smaller in terms of generation capacity, um, but they are more numerous um, as there are more parts of the basin to dam. Uh, already on the mainstream of the Mekong in Laos, there are two mainstream dams built, the Saiburi Dam and the Don Sahong, uh, and then there are plans for nine more, um, seven of them in Laos and two of them in Cambodia. Um, but on the tributaries of the Mekong and in the lower Mekong countries, um, there are scores of dams. So Laos has already completed more than 60 dams on its tributaries um, and is building 60 more um, and would like to build something like 250 more on top of that, many of them small-scale dams. Thailand has completed nine in its portions of the basin. Again, those are on tributaries. Vietnam, 16 on its tributaries. And Vietnam is both an upstream and a downstream country. Um, interestingly, Cambodia only has one large dam on its portion of the Mekong and, and then a, a very small dam off in the corner near the Tonle Sap. Um, and so with this uh, development moving forward, um, we're seeing, you know, big increases of generation capacity. And at the same time, um, drought is hitting the basin and that's impacting agricultural productivity. Dams contribute to that decrease in agricultural productivity. Uh, and fish catches are, are going down year on year if you talk to communities that thrive on the catch of that fish. How are distributional effects of dam building and, and its effect on the fisheries in the watershed? How are they affected by China's Belt and Road Initiative and also the Lansang Mekong Corporation? So um, I think we want to think about dam building as one that the, the distribution of benefits and impacts are not happening around the same place, um, that there's a disproportionate 
distribution of benefits and impacts. Um, so, you know, let's think about Beijing, right? Beijing is far away from the Mekong in Yunnan, um, China's portion of the Mekong in Yunnan. Um, and Beijing is benefiting politically from, um, from having these dams upstream. Um, Guangzhou uh, on, the, on the coast of China, its, its factories um, are meant to benefit from the generation of electricity from those dams in Yunnan. Um, the impacts of those dams are felt in and around those dams in Yunnan province and also far downstream, all the way down to the Mekong Delta, far away from Guangzhou. And uh, so there's this disproportionality that's playing out. But even more importantly, um, the Mekong is a basin that straddles uh, or is straddled by Vietnam and Thailand. Uh, and with Thailand on the west, Thailand to date is the largest consumer of power from the Mekong, uh, particularly from the lower Mekong. Thailand's building many more dams than uh, what China's building, four times as many, in fact, um, China has, in the lower Mekong, China has MOUs and contracts for 30-plus dams um, in Laos and Cambodia. And um, Thailand is is uh, building over 120 in Laos, or they have contracts or MOUs for, for this. So it's demand for power in Bangkok um, that often electrifies shopping malls, um, and more shopping malls as they're being built require more dams to be built. Um, and so there's a there's a setup, there's a structure that is sending Thailand's investment um, and sending its construction companies into Laos, particularly, to build these dams. Um, so again, those that are affected and impacted are, are the communities that live along the the riverside, um, either the mainstream or tributaries, and um, communities along the riverside in places like the Golden Triangle in Thailand at the periphery of Thailand, um, as well as in Laos, um, all the way down to the Lao-Cambodia border at the 4,000 Islands area, which is also traditionally one of the big fish catch areas of the Mekong, and then to the Tonle Sap floodplain where 500,000 tons of fish are, are caught each year, and then to the Mekong Delta where about the same amount of fish have been caught. All the fishers in these communities have said year on year that their catches are decreasing. Um, and uh, so there's, there's disproportionality. And, you know, if the, if the benefits um, were shared by those who are impacted, then perhaps there'd be less likelihood of conflict. Um, there'd be a more uh, a higher sense of equitable distribution of benefits. But that's just not the case. Um, what's interesting to me is that the Belt and Road Initiative uh, has, you know, there are some hydro, big hydropower dams that the Belt and Road Initiative has hung its hat on. Um, one is this uh, cascade of seven dams on the Nam U River. It's one of the, the longest tributaries of the Mekong uh, in Laos, in northern Laos, um, uh, between Sichuan Banan, China, and Luang Prabang in Laos. And um, those dams, by my account, have, because I've been there many times, um, are the worst in the entirety of the Mekong Basin, and in fact, probably compared to the rest of the world, too, um, for local impacts. I mean, they've entirely destroyed a pristine um, uh, tributary that where the ecological services really drove livelihoods and supported communities, uh, many of them ethnic upland people in northern Laos. 
And, um, you know, there's no, there are no fish ladders built into those seven dams. There's no sediment mitigation. Um, and, and I've asked around, I've talked to the builders, I've talked to the Lao government, talked to the Chinese government, why there isn't, um, any of this important mitigation built into those dams. Um, and I've never been given a straight answer. Um, I've also asked, you know, where is that power going? And there is no yeah. straight answer for that. There's no power purchase agreement currently established for that dam. So, what um, what do you, what that, what do you think explains why that's the case? Do you have any? Um, well, I, I think that you have the uh, mismatch of of supply and demand. Um, originally, some of these dams that were going to be built in northern Laos and then in eastern Myanmar, like the Mietzon Dam, um, had been purposed for sale of electricity back into China. Um, but China is a, is an electricity surplus country right now. And so many of China's solar plants and, and, and wind farms and, and big dams um, are already curtailing energy. They're, they're not um, producing at their anticipated capacity because the demand isn't there or the transmission linkages aren't there and that's true for china's dams in yunnan too like those big dams on the mekong and yunnan are hardly even producing any electricity um so there's just but i think the designs for the namu cascade went up at a time when um there was anticipated demand need from china they're close to china and now they want with they don't have a market and the country of laos doesn't need to consume it either so that's that's a cascade that's currently looking for a market um, all the while that the impacts are delivered to the local area as well as downstream. Um, but then in, in like Cambodia, the Lower Saison 2 Dam is a Belt and Road project. Um, this was the first large dam to be built on Cambodia's portion of the Mekong. It's a 400 megawatt dam that went operational in December 2018. And that was built at the request of the Hun Sen government, um, uh, Cambodia's prime minister, um, to to drop the price of electricity in Cambodia. I mean, for the longest time, Cambodia had the highest electricity tariffs in all of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, we were talking about Australia earlier. Uh, Australia's electricity prices are quite high. And so are Cambodia's. They're equally high. But in Australia, the electricity price incorporates environmental mitigation efforts, subsidies, and, and things that um, that are justified, I guess, by the high cost of electricity. Um, but in Cambodia, it's just a mismatch of supply and demand, high demand, low supply, the price of energy was high. And uh, Hun Sen asked China to build this dam, a dam that Vietnam's developers had previously walked away from because of the known environmental impacts that would be delivered by that dam. That dam was considered to um, have an impact on the entire fishery Popula entire fish population of the Mekong Basin to reduce it by 9.3%, almost 10% of, of the fish population, not the catch. The entire population will be wiped out by that one dam. Um, and um, the Hydro Lansong company, Huanam Hydro Lansong, that, that builds and maintains the 11 mega dams in China, came in and built that dam um, after Xi Jinping asked for it. And um, so it was built, and now it's there, and it's delivering the impacts. As, as one would anticipate. Um, but at the same time, the Belt and Road Initiative um, and banners are hanging high above that dam. And, and for whatever reason, Beijing says this is a, a example of a sustainable development project that, that helps to forward Cambodia's economic development. Um, interestingly, when that dam went online, the price of electricity did not drop because 
of demand. Um, demand is still rising uh, too quickly. Uh, that supply can't keep up with it. We didn't talk about the let's all make a cooperation mechanism, but um, see if you have any follow-up questions and then we can talk about the LMC. Yeah. You you have spent uh, more than 15 years in uh, different countries in the Mekong River. Can you give us some uh, bottom-up insights? Uh, how, how are local communities factor in the process and represented both in the Mekong River Basin Commission and the Lansan Mekong Corporation? You know, um, local communities really have never been part of the development process in in building dams in the Mekong. And, and um, the same can be said for local communities in China, right? That, that there really is no inclusive process that incorporates their needs. Um, uh, the top-down approach has always come in and, and dictated to those communities how their lives are going to be changed. And really, there's, you know, they have to bite the bullet and, and move or adjust um, or you know, parish. Um, and the same can be said for the most part in the Mekong Basin. Uh, it's unlike America where there are more inclusive processes or even in Nepal as a developing country where there are examples of local communities taking on equity ownership in actual dams and therefore, you know, having a say in how dams are designed and operated and managed and, and impact the communities around them. Um, but at the same time in the Mekong, community involvement differs country to country um, because governance styles differ country to country. Thailand is a so-called democracy. Um, Cambodia is a constitutional monarchy that operates very much like an autocracy. Um, Laos, communist dictatorship, Vietnam, communist dictatorship. Um, and uh, so it's no surprise that communities in Thailand are the most active um, and effective at impacting the policy conversation over hydropower and are, are the most uh, influential with, I would say to date, uh, with interacting with the Mekong River Commission, as well as China's Lansan Mekong Cooperation Mechanism. So it's those community groups that are supported by more national NGO efforts and regional NGO efforts um, that, that in Thailand that can, that can make a difference. Um, and However, in Laos, which is you know ground zero for building lots of dams in the Mekong, um, civil society groups have no voice, uh, no recourse for promoting a better outcome, which could include um, an alternative to building a dam, right? You know, building a, a different type of generation project, moving it to another site that might produce the same amount of, of generation, but have lower levels of impacts um, or a better resettlement package for them um, or uh, in terms of mitigation, you know, building fish ladders or sediment flushing gates into, into these dams as they go out. The Lao communities really have no say um, in this. And then in Cambodia, community groups are kind of in between Thailand and Laos that, um, and, and their impact uh, varies um, with the political process in Cambodia. So, you know, a time like now, there's no national election in sight. Um, the, the political processes are loosening. Non-government groups and civil society groups and communities have a little bit more say in the process. But whenever an election 
is approaching and Hun Sen needs to ensure that his election moves forward, um, the actions of these groups are often either self-censored or censored by government groups. Um, and Vietnam is interesting because Vietnam has um, vehemently opposed upstream dams to date uh, and has been the most outspoken against China um, uh, to date uh, of the lower Mekong countries. And um, for the most part, the government, civil society, and academic researchers are united um, with that voice uh, until recently, and until Vietnam, uh, a state-owned enterprise has now decided to build a Mekong mainstream dam in Laos. And uh, so I do worry about um, the way that civil society actors in Vietnam will be able to navigate this new, new situation of Vietnam supporting mainstream Mekong dams. Are, are there any positive examples where social resistance movements have actually been able to scale up their action against dam builders or, yeah? Um, I'll say two examples. One is the Mekong River Commission has a uh, mechanism related to the building of new mainstream dams before their construction begins. It's not an approval mechanism, but it's a technical review mechanism, as well as a um, like a hearing, public hearing process. And um, for the first big dam to be built on the lower Mekong, um, that's a Cyberry Dam, Thai invested dam built in Laos. Um, uh, numerous uh, stakeholders from civil society groups around the region engaged with a technical review process that resulted in that dam being quote unquote better built um, uh, to the increased price tag of $500 million. So the, the fish ladders, the fish pathways that were put into that dam were lengthened. There were something like as a result of this process, um, more resting pools put in that fish pathway um, for different varieties and different species and different sizes of fish to uh, rest in as they make their way over the dam. Um, a dam elevator was added to the design as a result of this process and how that works. I don't know. Um, you know, like a light turns on, the fish come in, door closes and up they go. I, I don't think fish work that way, but um, I've always questioned <laughs> the efficacy of a fish elevator. Um, and then uh, some design changes were made to the sediment gates Uh, sediment flushing gates in that dam. So overall, the the, the design of that project improved. Um, most of those groups didn't want to see the dam built, um, but at least a, a better dam was was designed. And um, but the issue is, is, you know, do those mitigation efforts work? And is the research to demonstrate that it's working now that that dam is operational? Is it transparently available? Um, to convince us that that it's a better dam, then nothing has been disseminated to date uh, to suggest um, that those efforts were are, are working. Um, and the second example isn't about damming, but it is a, a real example of the efforts of um, some individuals and some grassroots organizations in the Golden Triangle to change China's behavior in the Golden Triangle. So that's the Golden Triangle is where Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos meet, and um, this is there, there's a very active group of community of a community network in the Golden Triangle on the Thai side that have been opposed to China's engineers coming down out of China 
or 100 kilometers out of China, down through the Myanmar-Lao border, um, right into Thailand, um, and looking and surveying to blast rapids in that part of the river. Um, the Mekong is unnavigable at that portion of the river, so large cargo ships cannot go from um, China all the way into northern Laos uh, because of those rapids and shoals. And it's long been in the designs of Beijing um, and of, of key stakeholders in Yunnan province that support cargo trade coming out of China to blast those rapids and promote trade through the river. And this, these groups, um, um, which are led by um, actually a good friend of mine and, and the, the man I look to, I look up to the most for um, guidance and, and inspiration on promoting a, a better future for the Mekong. His name is Niwat Roy Kao, and many know of him as uh, Gru T, which is his uh, the name that we commonly call him. Um, he's led this movement, and for two decades, he every time those ships showed up to do the surveys, um, he'd get out there with hundreds of, of locals to protest and let the world know that these Chinese engineers have come into Thailand's um, border areas to to do the surveying, and, um, and it's a, it has been a very effective movement. So much so that now that project is canceled, um, and this was confirmed by China's foreign ministry and Thailand's foreign ministry. Um, and one of the things that um, that brought that cancellation forward just in the last month uh, was uh, that group convinced the local Thai government as well as the national government uh, to set up a meeting with um, Chinese stakeholders that were interested in blasting that part of, of the river. And um, that meeting happened. There were a couple different engagements where very simply all sides sit down, sat down, they, they aired their worries and concerns. They discussed some of the benefits of this project. Um, and uh, China's foreign ministry came back months later with with the note saying that something like we've heard the, the voice of the people and it's a, we think it's best not to move forward with this project. Um, so, you know, it was a real victory for civil society on the Mekong, a rare one, because these things don't happen often. Both, both Mekong River and the South China Sea are uh, large-scale common pool resources. What are the similarities and differences between China's behavior in the Mekong River and the South China Sea, would you say? Um, you know, China's, China's behavior in the Mekong and South China Sea are, I would say, completely different. Um, in the Mekong, China is the big upstream neighbor uh, and can, just like in the South China Sea, can overpower what's happening um, in other parts of the Mekong or, you know, in China's, uh, other parts of, of the South China Sea, which China claims most of the South China Sea with the nine dash line. So, you know, what the other parts are, I don't know. Um, but, uh, in the Mekong, there's clearly an upstream downstream situation and, uh, China controls the water flowing out of, um, its borders, uh, with the mechanism of these large mega dams. Uh, collectively, they hold back 47 billion cubic meters of water when they're at full storage capacity. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of water. I mean, I live in, in Washington, D.C. 
I live near the Chesapeake Bay, and that amount of water stored by China's mega dams is about the same amount of water that's in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, now, you know, unless those dams are just sitting there doing nothing, uh, and even if they were sitting there doing nothing, the water still needs to flow through them, right? They're not static systems. You've got to adjust reservoirs when rainwater is coming in, um, water is released when hydropower is produced. Um, but uh, to date, the the flow that's come out of those dams has not been anything near regular, uh, uh, nor has it been uh, predictable. So, um, and, and there's a lot of evidence uh, that shows that China is storing more water than it lets out. Uh, and so in this sense, you know, there's, there's talk about China being able to turn off the tap. Um, well, I think this year is pretty evident of, of that, that um, there's a drought going on right now in the entirety of the Mekong Basin, actually the, the upper part portions of the basin, particularly portions in China, had higher than average rainfall last year, where while all of the Mekong Basin and the downstream had extreme uh, lows in terms of rainfall. Um, and when these droughts set in and these, these dry, um, these periods of dryness hit, China's contribution to the downstream is about 50 percent of the water in the entire basin. Um, so that's that's really significant. Um, so in a sense, you know, the, there's more of a control mechanism um, at China's disposal than the South China Sea. Um, and one of the other differences is that that you know there aren't really overlapping claims um, in the Mekong. Uh, but there are resources that flow throughout the entirety of the Mekong that that the um, countries of the Mekong, particularly the communities of the Mekong, need to share. Uh, and they need to see these as shared resources. And that would be the fish. Um, that would be water availability as well as sediment flow. Um, and, and additionally, floods. You know, floods should be seen as a shared resource too. Floods do so much to drive the the economies of Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia, um, and their resources or effects that need to be maintained. Um, China's regulation of the river threatens to undo those flood cycles. And this is something that really concerns me because um, the Lantan Mekong Cooperation Mechanism talks more and more about flood control. And to me, that says that China's LMC thinks about the river um, like China thinks about all of its other rivers, you know, these are these are waterways that are meant to be exploited by man for man, uh, and any exploitation, uh, any um, negative impacts as a result of that exploitation can be made up for by other means. Um, but flood control in the Lower Mekong Basin is something that needs to be taken. Um, with a, with a really with very careful consideration, because these floods are what drive again the agricultural productivity. They're what drive the expansion and contraction of the Tonle Sap Lake and produce a 500,000 ton fish catch just in Cambodia alone. Um, without them, the Mekong wouldn't be mighty. Um, so there is kind of a you know if, if the nine dash line is an imposed viewpoint or an imposed framing of how China sees the South China Sea, then this um, upstream control with hydropower dams, as well as a new form of, of flood control uh, for the Mekong is a newly imposed 
vision that China is putting on to the lower Mekong countries. That, that's really interesting. But uh, don't don't you also also think that China's objectives are very similar? Because this is my perspective on it. It seems to me that China in the South China Sea, they want to kick out the Americans all the way back to Miami. And, and, the, and the, to LA or Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and they want to control the narrative. So they want to control the narrative and they want to kick out the Americans. Isn't that, isn't that the same thing in Mekong? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, the situation is a little bit more dynamic. Uh, it's less of like a America versus China dynamic in the Mekong than it is in the South China Sea um, because one, um, the U.S. isn't necessarily the dominant development partner um, in the Mekong region. Um, the U.S. has had some effective uh, programmatic interventions uh, to push, you know, uh, better governance or more transparency or better water equity um, within the, the lower Mekong countries. But Japan and Australia, the EU are also equally active um, with their own programs. And, and these are developing countries that, um, that need, how should I say this? You know, South China Sea is kind of peripheral for all. Yeah. Um, where the Mekong is in the countries themselves. Yeah. Uh, so whatever happens on the Mekong today impacts those uh, people and communities and stakeholders in the Mekong today. Uh, and I think that actually increases the, the response from countries from in, in the Mekong, um, the urgency and expression of needs. Um, and those needs and urgencies are often expressed you know, broadly to um Uh, to development partners like the U.S., Japan, Australia, and to China, um, and and then the, res the the way that the countries act tends to be more of playing a balancing game um, between China and these countries than I would say uh, occurs in the South China Sea. But at the same time, you know, China has always been able to play its Cambodia card or vice versa, whichever way you look at it, right? That Cambodia plays the China card um, in South China Sea uh, uh, negotiations in ASEAN. Um, and, um, and I think there's an implicit uh, understanding that, that China can always use its special relationship with Cambodia to ensure that it will maintain its sway over, um, over certain sectors of what's happening in the Mekong. Uh, and can utilize things like the building of dams to um, expand other sectors. Uh, you know, when, when the low, lower Saison II dam uh, was being built, at the same time, Cambodia's real estate market was widely open for Chinese investment. And I think there's a relationship there. You know, there's a trade-off there. Um, and, and you can trace similar trade-offs around the region. So, yeah, I mean, there are some similarities Um, but again, I think the the urgencies and the crisis points um, are actually more acute uh, in the Mekong than in the South China Sea. This year, uh, Vietnam took over the rotational share of ASEAN. Vietnam would also in 2020 become a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security right. Council. What does uh, Vietnam's role in these two international forums mean for their Mekong River. 
Yeah, it's an interesting year for Vietnam to to raise the discourse of the, the, the Mekong issue set, right? If there is a Mekong security issue set, um, this is the year to do it for Vietnam. And, and from what I see, Vietnam is planning to do so um, as chair of ASEAN. And how they're going to do that, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. But um, I, I think that Vietnam is... Um, and has been, uh, through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, very active in convincing that other set of development partners, you know, the U.S., Japan, Australia, um, in, in matching needs as they're articulated by the Vietnamese with new resources and new programming that, that address those needs, whether it's in the Mekong Delta um, or for improved upstream transboundary river governance. Um, and what I've seen is that the development partners are responding to that rhetoric. Um, I think later on this year, we're going to see a reshuffling of how the U.S. views the Mekong, um, and, and for the better, and a lot of that is a result of Vietnam's pressing for for this need. Uh, and for the first time, um, we will see uh, a set of Mekong issues on the ASEAN agenda set at the ASEAN summit, as well as the East Asia summit. Um, and my, I think that that agenda is going to address um, a food security and water security issue or a crisis depends on how well the Mekong bounces back after this year of drought and the bounce back will happen sometime in June and, and uh, July when the rains come again. Um, but ASEAN really has never taken up the Mekong security um, set of challenges uh, for, for a variety of reasons. You know, the, like the Mekong countries are the newest to arrive in ASEAN. They're very close within China's orbit, so they don't, some of them don't dare to poke the, the dragon. Um, and, and then also there's been somewhat of a understanding within ASEAN that, you know, like Thailand as one of the, the managing countries of mainland Southeast Asia should be able to take on a higher regional role for the Mekong region and to, to you know, put out fires and to take care of things. But Thailand's governance trends do not lend towards such uh, uh, an ability for Thailand to play that role. Um, even though Thailand's government tries, it, it's, it's certainly not um, you know, acting as a regulator of things in the Mekong. Um, so Vietnam is going to take it up to, to the agenda of ASEAN this year. Um, and uh, and I, I think, you know, it'll be presented less so in a security lens and more so as, as a, in a traditional security lens or, you know, a worry about China as a, as a um, the, the new overlord of mainland Southeast Asia, but rather be put into one of food and water security. Um so many markets in ASEAN, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore consume things from the Mekong Delta. Uh, when you consume things from the Mekong Delta, you're also consuming water from the Mekong Delta, and that water needs to be available. Um, again, you remember I gave those stats before, 50% of the rice export, 70% of the fruit, 70% of the aquaculture comes out of the Mekong Delta, goes to the rest of the world, um, and it's going to ASEAN first. So... ASEAN is as um, in uh, connection to the Mekong um, as any other part of the world is if I, and should rightfully be concerned about keeping food supplies up, 
uh, keeping water supplies up that drive the food supplies out of Vietnam. Um, so Vietnam is very rational to, to raise this as part of their agenda, um, not just from a strategic point of view, but also from an economic point of view. What, what do you say is the most important misconception about the Mekong River? Um, I'll, I'll give two or three. Uh, you know, I, I do think that, that China's actions in the Mekong um, have have done a, a lot less good than they have um, have brought. Um, but Thailand is building many more dams in the Mekong, particularly in Laos, than China is. Uh, and so that's one misperception that should be corrected. Um, again, I, I talked about China's Namu Dam, Cascade, seven dams worst in the, in the world uh, being built, uh, no power market. These are really bad ideas. Um, but it, you know, for mainstream Mekong dams, Thailand built the first one. And Thailand is looking to build other mainstream Mekong dams. China may as might, might two China and Thailand might do it together. Um, but a lot more focus needs to um, uh, be emphasized on on Thailand's role as a dam developer. Uh, the second is that, you know, the Mekong River is a lot more than the mainstreams, uh, the mainstream of the Mekong. It's, it's a lot more than just one north to south line that flows from China into Vietnam. Um, uh, there are thousands, tens of thousands of kilometers of tributary rivers in the Mekong system. It's a large basin, um, and it's that basin that, drives the mightiness of the Mekong, that drives the fish catch, it drives the agricultural productivity, what comes from that basin and the people that live along um, those tributaries uh, that that thrive on what comes out of the river system. Fish are migrating all through the basin. There are upstream migrants that go, you know, very, very little spawning and laying of eggs that drives the fish population it happens in the Mekong mainstream. It's all happening in the, in the headwaters of these tributaries. So um, a a conversation about the Mekong needs to be one that sees the system as a system and not just a, as one uh, main stem dam. Um, so when I talk about dams, um, I say something like there are plans for more than 400 dams in the Mekong. You know, I'm not just talking about the mainstream and I, I'm not particularly interested in saying there are X amount of mainstream dams and X amount of tributary dams um, because one tributary dam could be equally as damaging as as a mainstream dam. And a third misconception is that um, that the Mekong starts in China. Uh, obviously, the headwaters rise in China, um, but the, the lifeblood of this river system comes from Cambodia's Tonle Sap. And, and it's, no other river in the world is like it. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, China sees the river wrong, and, and many others also, you know, have a wrong conception of, of the river system. There's this lake in Cambodia that once a year takes on water from the mainstream. So the water goes out of the mainstream, reverses the direction of the river that typically flows out of the lake, pushing it back into the lake, causing that lake to expand five times its size. It happens every year. And when that expansion happens, 70 times the amount of water that's in it during the dry season comes in. Lots of eggs for fish, lots of fish juveniles, lots of sediment go into this mix of the lake and create an explosion of life, which then when the monsoons end and the dry season comes again, the lake drains and all the fish, many of the fish, um, 
go back out and they travel upstream, they travel downstream, upstream. Some of them used to go all the way to China. Now they can't because of dams. And, and others will go downstream into the delta and drive this huge fish catch. That Tonle Sap expansion and contraction is the beating heart of the Mekong. It's a, a rhythm that has persisted in an enormous way, um, in, in, in a remarkable way, again, that is not repeated throughout the rest of the world for thousands of years. And uh, I say thousands of years because it, the lake's only been there for about 5,000 years. But upstream dams plus climate change are, are altering that effect. They're creating a weaker heartbeat, less expansion, less contraction each year. And that is what's driving these lower catches of fish and, and lower agricultural production um, in the rest of the Mekong. So if you think about the Mekong, you've got to put the Tonle Sap at a high level priority, the health of the Tonle Sap Lake um, at that at that high level. History is constantly uh, changing and, and evolving. Uh, as as we move into the future, what do, what do you see? What, what do you see? <laughs> well, what is what is the future of governance of the Mekong River? Yeah, um, you know, I, I there there are things that you would hope would change. Um, I mean, there are really technical processes available now that can move those that are developing the the Mekong for for dams away from building one dam at a time and and causing the the river system to die a death of a thousand cuts. Um, those planning processes can think about dams that have yet to be built and develop scenarios which help understand how one scenario versus another delivers X amount of power generation but less impacts, fewer impacts to fisheries, to agriculture, to forestry, to resettlement, etc. Um, and I mean, that, that technology is here and now. It's being used in other parts of the world The countries of the Mekong, the governments of the Mekong, are capable of carrying out some of these processes. It's just a matter of, you know, having a political will and the resources to do so. Um, and at the same time, the renewable energy revolution is—it's happening in the, the the countries of the Mekong. Um, Thailand has something like six gigawatts of solar power. Vietnam now has seven gigawatts of solar power. Vietnam's were all built in the last 12 months. Seven gigawatts. Uh, Cambodia is starting to turn towards solar. Laos uh, just announced that it will build 1,200 megawatt floating solar facility, the largest in the world. Um, and all of these disruptive newer renewable technologies can replace the need for future dams. Um, and so you you know you hope and you can push and you can promote um, a, 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 an idea and a theory of change that could say better planning and and alternative generation source resources can can save the Mekong. Um, but I think right now we're the river system is in a state um, where it's very close to its ecological point of no return, um, where that these ecological systems and services that the river has provided, um, you know, for longer than anyone can remember, um, are now breaking down. Um, to a point that they cannot recuperate. And the river system um, geologically uh, and physically is a, a very resilient system. You know, like droughts have happened in the past, yet 
that this is still home to the world's largest fish catch. The river can bounce back, but with these human interventions in built across the, the river, uh, as well as other things that are happening, like the extraction of sand um, and, and building of cities, large cities alongside of, of the river, um, it's changing the system's ability to adapt and be resilient. So, you know, I ask about the future. The, the question is to me is how long can the system hold on? And when the system breaks, um, you know, how will the crises play out? Uh, are we going to see mass movements of, of people? Um, will the governance capabilities of these countries and the economies be strong enough to weather the storm? Cambodia, no. Laos, probably not. Vietnam will be shocked. Um, and, you know, what, what type of implication will that play? Um, what, what implications will play out for regional security and for global security? Um, we've seen this region destabilized before. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty picture. And, and at the end of the day, you know, what would then be the role of development partners? Um, how does this play out geopolitically um, as China, you know, looms large in the region? Um, and that, you know, more importantly, how do these communities adapt? You know, there's tens of millions of people who are going to be affected. So those are the things that, that I'm looking for. Um, and, you know, I, I talked about some threats and, and um, undesired outcomes that, um, that could undo stability in the region. And what I do day to day is try to think of ways to um, prevent those from happening. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Brian. And uh, thank you all for listening to this uh, episode about the Mekong River. Thanks, Jasper. Happy to do it again. Water Q&A is a joint production for Global Water Forum by the Australian National University and University of Oxford. To find out more, go to www.globalwaterforum.org. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. Just type in Global Water Forum into the search bar.